Father, we do thank you for the promises of your word that guide us and keep us every day. And Lord, we acknowledge readily that we are weak people and prone to failure and prone to upset. And so help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, help us to be committed to your word and to walking in obedience, to disciplining ourselves unto godliness, to letting uh, the Holy Spirit have a freedom to work within us, that we would gain victory over the flesh, and that we would walk by faith and not by sight. And now, Father, for the lessons at hand today, would you please teach us, encourage us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about my backyard in Vicksburg, Michigan, where I grew up, outside of Kalamazoo. And uh, sometimes when we would go out in our backyard, it's relatively flat in that part of the country in the Midwest, and you could look across, and as the crow flies, it may have been only a mile or so, and there was a grass-stripped runway. We could not see the runway, but we could often see small light planes coming and going. There was a there was a, a club that gathered at that airport, that little grass strip country airport, and it was um, a parachuting club. And so often, as you stood in our backyard, you could see the multicolored parachutes, and it was in the 70s, and it was a time when this, the extreme sports were coming on, and, and the equipment was, was um, evolving, and you could see, as you can picture from television or your own experiences, the multicolor parachutes, and then they had the parasails in the different shapes, and they didn't just have the old snow cone-shaped parachutes, and, and they would jump, and sometimes uh, this club, as the years went by, developed, and they would jump, and they would hold hands, and they would do formations, and they would go way up there. We had a young man in our little church there in Vicksburg, Michigan, where my dad was the pastor named Mark, who was just a year or two older than I, and he joined that club, and um, he started to uh, develop a, a, a log of many jumps, became very confident, became very active in the parachuting club. And one of the things that began to happen as we, he got, I think he had to be 16, so I was about 14. And as I became closer to 16, he began to work on me at church. Hey, Van, why don't you come on out and take a jump? Hey, Van, come on out and jump. I'll tell you something. I have no problem standing here today saying I have never jumped out of an airplane. All right? I appreciate people who do. I'm glad that they can do it. I, I believe it's true. But I never went over and investigated, and I love airplanes, but I don't like to jump out of airplanes. I never went and investigated that parachuting club. Do you know why? Because I knew that I would enjoy very much... Uh, talking to the guys, being around the airplanes, handling the equipment. Who wouldn't want to wear a jumpsuit and have all that and the helmet and the mask and everything and it's all great stuff. But sooner or later, if you're part of a parachute club, do you know what you have to do? <laughs> you have to stop talking about it and you have to stop messing with your equipment and you have to get in the plane and they open the door and it's so loud that you're screaming at each other and somebody's going to point at you and say, go! And I'm going to say, no, no. And then they're going to laugh at you and then your dad's going to be upset because you spent all this money. See, sooner or later, 
you're going to have to step out of the plane. Sooner or later, you're going to have to just jump. You're going to have to go. You're going to have to trust your equipment. You're going to have to make the jump. I don't like that feeling. I believe in parachutes and I believe in airplanes. And I just stay back from that stuff. I invite you to turn to Genesis 22 this morning. And we are in a place in our study in the book of Genesis. And I hope you're enjoying and benefiting deeply from our studies here. I know that I am. As we learn what it means to walk by faith from Father Abraham, we are going to learn today that in our Christian experience, and I recognize the dynamics of his walk of faith with God versus ours post-cross, post-resurrection in our church era as the Holy Spirit indwells us and as we have the completed counsel of God in our hands and we have the word of God, Abraham had none of this. Abraham did not have an indwellingness of the Holy Spirit in the same sense and measure that we do. Abraham did not have a written word of God. Now, you would say, well, I would trade all that to have these personal encounters with God that Abraham had. To have him come to my house and talk to me. But you have to remember, don't you, in the, chrono the chronology of our storyline, as we work our way through the life of Abraham, and he's getting old now, and it won't be long, that everything's going to change and we're going to shift then to the next generation in our study and it will focus on Isaac. In fact, um, as soon as next, well, next week is our Sanctity of Human Life message, but following that, right in times for Valentine's, how to get a wife, lessons from Isaac on how to get a wife and there's some valuable lessons for our interpersonal relationships and so forth. But Abraham is old and you have to remember that there are long periods of time or a husband Denise, or a husband. Sorry. I saw the reaction over here that I didn't know. I didn't want, I wanted to give equal time, okay? Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I mean to embarrass you. <clears throat> you know, I, I, all right, let's move on. There are long gaps in the timeline with Abraham in, in his encounters with God. And you know that it's not easy when God is silent. In our story today, God speaks again specifically to Abraham with specific instruction. And what a story it is. You need to know this is an actual historical account. I call it a story, but I don't mean it in any way as a make-believe or something that in any way is not true. This really happened precisely as it is recorded for us by Moses the historian here, so that Israel and the church would have a record of the account of how they got where they were. Let me read the text. It's no doubt a, a familiar story to some of you. You will see in the story that in Abraham's life now, God has him at a place in his walk of faith where more than any other time, he now has to say, okay, buddy, I want you to step out of the airplane. I want complete trust in me. I want you to have in your mind as we proceed through the text and as we proceed through the message today that in our Christian experience and in our walk of faith with God that sooner or later it is a biblical reality, it is a testimony of the Christian life that God will bring us at 
key and pivotal points in our lives to places. doesn't happen all the time. There will be long periods of time in between. But there will be times in our Christian experience where God would say, will say to us, okay, today is a day I want you to step out of the airplane. Today, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. Today, you have to just quit talking and you have to live it out. Those are not easy days, weeks, or months, even years in our lives. Let's read the story, Genesis chapter 22. I'm reading from the New International Version. We transition from uh, the storyline of of, uh, the pushing away of Hagar and Ishmael. We talked about that last week. We we know that Abimelech and his uh, military leader, Phicol, has come and and worked a deal of, of peace. In verse 33 of chapter 21, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God, And Abraham stayed in the the land of the Philistines for a long time. Some time later, is the bridge into into chapter 22, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you, are, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, 
I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together to Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Can you imagine? What a story. I want us to break this down into four parts this morning for our learning and for our insight. First of all, we want to take a look at the extreme test under which God has placed Abraham. I want you to notice then God's exact instruction. And then we'll observe Abraham's exceptional obedience and his extraordinary faith. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, break it down, and let's see what is happening here. First of all, the extreme test. Abraham's extreme test. Verses 1 and 2. Sometime later... Back up in verse 34 in chapter 21 that I've already noted, you notice that it just says that he lived in the land of the Philistines for a long time and then sometime later. We noted last week on the timeline of, of the uh, dismissal of Hagar and Ishmael and the casting away of Ishmael into the desert that Ishmael must have been at the minimum 16 years of age, probably closer to 18. We know that the event that brought that emotional moment into Abraham's life where he had to rid himself of his wife Hagar and his son Ishmael, whom he loved, was the uh, weaning of Isaac. So Isaac had to have been at least three or four years old. And then it says that some time went by. It is interesting to note in the, commentator, the commentaries, the speculation of how much time went by. The Hebrew word for his son, and later on in the passage, don't harm the boy, is a word that can be used for a young boy or for a young man. So it's not clear in the language exactly what age son we're talking about. There's a good bit of emphasis given to the fact that Isaac was old enough to carry the load of wood on his back up a mountain. And that probably Abraham on purpose gave him the heavier load because he was the stronger of the two. We take a minute to just think about the age of Isaac because I want you to see later on its significance in his cooperation with this great event of what happens. It's not hard to find commentaries that state that they believe that Isaac was as old as 30 or 35 years old. I read that in more than one place. I picture him to be a boy of somewhere between 14 and 20. The Bible doesn't tell us, so it must not be important. But he's a young man. He's old enough to know what's going on. He has some physical strength. And we have here a, a, a blurred timeline in that we just don't know how much time went by. There are some ways of looking at the age and the math is how some of the guys try to calculate. But it's somewhat ambiguous. Sometime later, look what it says. God tested Abraham, I want to make note that in this extreme test that we, the reader, know right away that it's a test. But Abraham doesn't know that it's a test. 
So for our information right away up front, and I think partly to diffuse the dramatic request that God makes of Abraham to kill his own son, we know right away it's a test. This extreme test, first of all, is irrational, isn't it? God is asking Abraham to do something that seemingly, from the human perspective, is absolutely irrational. It does not make sense. Think about it. God has made a promise. The promise is that you're going to have a son, Abraham, and through this son, you're going to have descendants that are more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And Abraham knows and has clear understanding that that son was not Ishmael and that the son of promise is Isaac. And so why would God say before Isaac is even married, that Abraham, take him up on the mountain, a place I'm going to show you and kill him. It's unbelievable. It's irrational. And we need to ponder this long enough to recognize that Abraham receives this word from God. We don't know how he received it. Somehow God made this clear and spoke to him. I take it that they actually had a verbal conversation based on the way Moses records it. Abraham, here I am. That's a pretty great response, isn't it? When God calls your name. Huh? Who, who's talking to me? Here I am, Lord. Reminds you of Samuel, doesn't it? Called upon three times during the night, running over to the old man Eli, asleep on his mat. Did you call, sir? Did you call? He had never heard God speak to him before. Eli finally in this rousing enough from his sleep to recognize what, say, speak, Lord, your servant heareth. Yes, Lord. I want you to do something for me. I want you to do something that is very irrational, Abraham. I want you to go and kill your son. Doesn't make sense. This is the son of promise. Secondly, critics of the Bible have a pretty good case to argue that God is asking him to do something that is quite reprehensible. It is something that is wrong. This is what the pagans do. This is what the Canaanites would do. This is something that God, in about 430 years from now, is going to condemn to the degree that he's going to chisel it in stone. It's number six. Thou shalt not take an innocent life. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not kill. You don't kill your children. This is not something that is within the parameters of morality. Any kind of, any kind of uh, sanctity of human life here. What are you talking about? Why would you do this? And let me put your mind at ease a little bit. I already referenced, I think, that that's why God says to the reader through Moses right away, this is a test. I, I am, see, but Abraham has limited information. Abraham doesn't have the Ten Commandments yet. I think that Abraham has the built-in conscience that God has put in all of us, that he had to have been repelled by this. He had to have been repulsed by this. He had to have his gut tighten up or he was no loving father. And hence, we have a recognition of the incredible faith that Hebrew is going to talk about in a little bit. Okay, Lord. Whatever, wherever, Whenever, I know that you said it, 
so I will do it. I do not have to understand what you're saying to me. Secondly, I think it's important to recognize going into this so you're not too bothered by God's request here. It is a test, but I think you also need to recognize, and we'll talk more about this hopefully later, but it is a type. It is a foreshadowing. Can you think of anybody who gave up his only one and only loved son to become a burnt offering in essence, a living sacrifice, one who was put to death? in wholehearted commitment. We'll talk a little more about that. One of the things that God is doing here is he's giving us a foreshadowing. He's giving us a recognition that there is more to come. Not only is it irrational and reprehensible, but I think kind of like just driving a stake into the heart of Abraham, it's irreversible. Okay, Lord, let me get this straight. You're going to ask me to do something, and the minute I do it, it is over. Humanly speaking, I cannot change it. There's no wiggle room here. There's no room for negotiation. He's either alive or he's on the altar dead. You said put him on the altar and kill him. It's totally clear. The lines are drawn. There's no confusion. This is one extreme test. I might also make note that God has never, ever again asked somebody to kill their son. In fact, he always condemns it. Let me make that clear. And we will really make that clear next week in our annual, last Sunday in January, Sanctity of Human Life message. I want you to note now, though, the exact instruction that God gives Abraham. It's really interesting. It boils down to three parts, doesn't it? Take, go, and sacrifice. God's very pointed, very clear. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. At least 10 times he's going to reference the son. About four times he's going to say your only son. He references here, this is the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. That's interesting, isn't it? A father giving up his son as an act of love. And it's the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. And it's a type of foreshadowing. For God so loved the world, didn't he, that he gave his one and only son. This exact instruction is without confusion. It's totally clear cut. Abraham completely understands what God is asking him and there is no confusion. I want you to take your left hand and turn back to chapter 12. You can use your right hand if you want, but I use my left hand. Back to chapter 12, go left in your Bible to chapter 12. I think this is interesting that this is without question the most difficult thing that God has ever asked Abraham to do. And God has already asked Abraham to do some big things, don't you think? I want you to pack up and go, and that's what I want you to see the parallel. Abraham has heard something like this before. He says in this passage, take your son, go to a mountain I'm going to show you, And sacrifice him there. But notice he says, and I will tell you about it in chapter 22. Look at chapter 12. Um, Look what he says here in chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. Now, flip back to 22 too. 
Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Chapter 12, he says, leave. Chapter 22, he says, take. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, go. 22, 2, he says, go. 12, 1, he says, I will show. 22, 2, he says, I will tell. This is kind of parallel to the kind of instruction that Abraham has somewhat of an accustomed ear to hearing God do. Okay, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I know it seems minuscule in light of butchering your son as a burnt offering, an offering totally given over, irreversible. But I think that it was significant, even the instruction that God gave Abraham, remember when he said, today, starting today, I want you to circumcise yourself and every male in your household. It's like, what's that all about? We had a whole message about it. That's incredible. And so Abraham did it. Every time God says, do this and go here and do this, Abraham is passing the test, isn't he? God gave exact instruction. I want us to note back in 22, Abraham's exceptional obedience. First of all, notice that it was a prompt obedience. Look at verse 3. It was a prompt obedience. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. We can only speculate because it's not given to us in the text. The emotional processing of Abraham. Where he was spiritually at this point was evidently at a very high point, a very confident point. He was learning to walk with God. He was learning to hear God speak. He was learning to obey God without hesitation. We can speculate that Abraham's gut tightened up and that on the inside, he had a human part of himself that wanted to say, oh no, Lord, not again, not this. And why that? To question why, there seems to be no question. The affirmation of Abraham's deeds in the New Testament would appear that there was great commitment to obedience in Abraham at this time and probably minimal emotional consternation, although it had to be there. And you'll notice, though his obedience was prompt, that in the unfolding of the storytelling here, it is quite dramatic because he now has three days to process this thing. So early the next morning, immediate, prompt obedience. What a good example. No hesitation. God has spoke. What do I have to think about? I don't have to logic this thing. It's illogical. It's irrational. I just know that God said it. I do it. His obedience was exceptional because it was prompt, and his obedience was exceptional because it was so willing. It was so willing, wasn't it? Silent in the passage is any talk back. There's no lip. There's no whining. There's no moaning and groaning. Woe is me. Look what God has me doing. Why don't you ask him to give up his son? Why do I have to do it? No, Lord, you've spoken. It will be an immediate response. It will be a willing response. No questioning, no grumbling. And there is no record anywhere that he questions God. I have to believe in his humanity and in his pondering. And as I read the story, there seems to be an indication of minimal dialogue between these men and boys as they go. I think this was a three days of 
relative silence. Men can be pretty good at that anyway. But you almost get the idea that Abraham is inside himself at this point, stirred to alertness by Isaac's question, Father, oh, yes, son. We got the fire, we got the knife, we got the wood. Where's the animal? Oh, the Lord will provide. Good answer, wasn't it? Don't worry, son. Don't worry. The Lord will provide. I have to tell you, I believe that Abraham really believed it. We have reason to believe that. It was a prompt obedience. It was a willing obedience. It was a quiet obedience. It was a complete and thorough obedience. Abraham did not try to take any shortcuts. When we get down to verse 9, look what it says. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Question, do you think he was really going to do it? I don't think there's any doubt about it. The Bible's clear he was going to do it. In fact, the Bible even tells us it's as though he did do it and God resurrected the boy. Spiritually speaking, that is how sure God was that Abraham was going to completely obey him. Wow. Son, go make your bed. Did you make your bed, son? Yep. I made it. And then what does mom do? She walks in and what? You didn't make your bed. Yes, I did. Look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. That's how we obey, isn't it? Abraham's obedience was exceptional. What a model. This prompt, immediate, willing, quiet, complete, thorough obedience in the face of the most pivotal, incredible moment of faith in his life. Finally, I want you to see that faith as extraordinary This exceptional obedience enables him to live out an extraordinary faith. You need to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 because I want to tell you what Abraham was thinking. Do you want to know what Abraham was thinking when he had that knife up in his hand? Do you want to know what Abraham was thinking when he was ready to plunge that killing knife into his son? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what he was thinking. Notice. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. Look what it says. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. All right, there it is. He, he knows that much. We've already kind of emphasized that. God knows that, Abraham knows that there's a plan from God and it's, this plan is going to unfold through Isaac. But it says, even though he knew this, he did it. And look what it says. This is what he was thinking. Abraham reasoned. That's what goes on inside your brain. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Wow. You talk about incredible faith. Listen, there has been no example of a resurrection to date 
in Abraham's life. He has not spent his whole life celebrating Easter. He did not live in a three-year window of time where he could observe and follow Jesus of Nazareth around and hear him say to rotting, stinking corpses, come forth. There was no example of this. Evidently, in the three days of that trip to the place where God was going to show him, most scholars believe that Mount Moriah is the temple mount today. It's where Solomon built his temple. It's where David offered his sacrifice. Remember, I will offer nothing that costs, uh, I will offer nothing that costs me nothing, and so forth. A, a real important spot. You can't, we can't 100% prove it, but it's believed that that's where it was. And he takes him up there. And in the three-day journey to get there, this is how he processed it. All right? I know that God made a promise. And I've done everything I know to do to obey that promise. And now I know that God is telling me what to do. And God has taken me to the top of the mountain here. And I'm going to sacrifice my son. And the only way he could process this and calculate it is okay. Because I am so sure of the promise of a heritage of children, I am so sure of generations to come through Isaac that when I kill this boy and burn him's body, that out of the ashes, God is going to resurrect him and show his power. And it says that it was counted unto righteousness for Abraham for all of this faith. This proved it. We'll look a little bit further more in James in a minute. I just want you to get that moment. How do you put that together? The only way you put that together is that you, you have a confidence in the word of God that is just unbelievable. God has spoken, and this is it. So we'll do it. Abraham, I'm going to take you up to 15,000 feet, and you jump. Okay, Lord, I'll jump. But in this case, it's almost like he says, and I want you to jump, and you don't get to wear a parachute. All right. What extraordinary faith Abraham believed with all of his heart. Can we draw three lessons in conclusion? Lesson number one is a doctrinal theological conclusion that I've already referenced, and it is, number one, that we see here in this passage and in our lesson for this morning, we see that there is a type of Christ presented to us, a foreshadowing. Listen. In Isaiah 53, let me just read a few verses for you. You're welcome to turn there if you wish. But in Isaiah 53, listen listen to what it says. Beginning with verse 5. In this prophetic passage about our Lord Jesus, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen to this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearer, her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We'll stop there. In Isaac, don't we see a type of Christ? We know three times in the passage that it has said, my one and only son. We know multiple times in the passage, the son that you love. I want you to notice that Isaac has willingly submitted to the father's will. He's probably old enough to run away from his father. He's old enough to push him down. He's old enough to to not hold his hands out and hold still while it says Abraham tied him and then helped place him on the altar, placed him on the altar. But like our Lord Jesus was silent, evidently in this occurrence and on this afternoon when it happened, Isaac was silent. What a boy. What a boy. My father said to do this, so I'm going to do this. I don't know what his emotional framework was. I don't know what he was thinking. We have in this story as well, though, don't we? As Abraham holds his knife up ready to plunge it in, what does God say? Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham, in the Hebrew, it says he turned around, probably. He turned around, turned about. There in the thicket in the briars was a ram stuck by its horns. And we also have, don't we, a substitutionary lamb. We have, the first time in scripture, the image of a substitutionary death. One who would die for the other, but it was as though he died. Can you relate to that? Listen, this is what our Heavenly Father did, isn't it? He took his one and only son whom he himself, it's recorded at his baptism, whom he loves. And he allowed him to go and be beaten and be put on that sacrificial altar, as it were, at Golgotha and hang on the cross and become sin for us. A a sacrifice given over. And it says in Isaiah prophetically, and it's recorded for us as well, that Jesus didn't even answer them, did he? Remember, they hollered at him and tried to get him. He was silent. And this is the part we need to really understand this morning. It was a substitutionary death. That Jesus, for us, is the equivalent of a ram in the bushes to Isaac. That because that ram was there, Isaac could get his wrists untied and... Pops, I knew you were going to do it too, Pop. You would have done it, wouldn't you? Yes, sir, I would have, boy. Ah, man. But the Lord in his grace didn't make him go through with it. The Lord in his mercy and in his grace and in his sovereign design and in his compassion had that substitutionary role to be played. Are you thankful this morning that you don't have to die for your own sin? Do you understand that the wages of your sin is death? but that the gift of God was Jesus stuck in the bushes so they would nail him to the cross. And that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That he who was perfect and spotless and didn't deserve to die, did die. Isn't that an incredible story? The very picture of our salvation. Do you know Christ as your Savior today? Has he paid the penalty for your sin? Have you received this free gift of salvation? I hope so. Second lesson we want to learn from this is less a doctrinal and theological lesson as the type of Christ is, and it's more of a biblical spiritual lesson. 
It's the test of faith. We have the type of Christ in this story, and we have a test of faith. Will you turn to James chapter 1 quickly, please? And We need to bump into these verses just for a second. Hebrews, and then over to James chapter 1. Just notice the very first couple verses here of this chapter. James chapter 1, verse 2, look what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that, the, look at this, and the NIV captures it. If you're using a King James, by the way, the word tempted is sometimes used, and it creates a confusion for the word testing. And the NIV does get this right here. When you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It is a reality of the Christian life to have testing. Number one, testing is a part of the Christian life. Number two, testing is not the same as temptation. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. We're not talking about the pulsating drive of the lust for sin as being a test from God. That is a fleshly, sinful temptation. This is a test that he's talking about. These are the times of trial in our lives when things don't make sense and only the promises of God are there for our foundation and God wants to show us. This is, this is Job. This is Job, you've lost this and Job, you've lost that and Job, you've lost your buildings and now you've lost your children. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Testing is necessary to prove that our faith is real. In chapter 2, look at these verses that end up almost being confusing. But in chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, there's a whole section on faith, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically, he says, look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? He goes through the whole passage to show that it is by our actions that we prove that our faith is real and that if we never prove with our actions that our faith is real, that our faith isn't real. And that's why that confusing verse is in there. At the end of verse 24, at the end of this section, if you pull it out of context, it's confusing. He says in verse 24 of James 2, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. He said, wait a minute, I thought I was justified by faith alone. You are, but it's a faith that produces works. And if the faith doesn't produce works, to the degree that you could even say, look at his works, see his faith is real. See, he's justified because his works prove that his faith was real. This is, this is being part of a parachute club that never gets in an airplane and never jumps out. That's one kind of faith. Then there's the parachute club that gets their parachute on and then opens the door and jumps out. And they actually do what they say they're going to do. That's one of the lessons in this story is that our faith is something to be seen in everyday living. There's a type of Christ and there's a test of faith. And I think uh, the ultimate lesson in this passage for us today that we want to take with us comes from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Will you look there quickly? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The third lesson is that talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. We learn that there's a type of Christ and it relates to our salvation. We learn that there is a test of faith and that our faith will be tested. 
to make sure it's real. You have to expect it. It may be when the doctor looks at you and says, you've got six months, buddy. Okay, do I really believe what I believe? It may believe when you're standing out on the sidewalk at two o'clock in the morning looking at the burnt remains of your home and everything you owned. All right, do you really believe what you believe? There are testings that God will take you through. But ultimately, we need to realize and walk away from this passage and, and say, talk is cheap. I have to live out this commitment. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable or pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Stop conforming to the world. What God calls us to do is to become this kind of holy, given over, complete sacrifice to Him. That all of me belongs to Him. Every part of me. You know, some of us are playing games with our Christian life. Some of us have become highly skilled at living like the world and living for Jesus at the same time because we are not wholly given over. We have never become that living sacrifice. We would never tell God, all of me, because we don't trust him enough to jump out of the airplane with him. He might ruin my good times. I don't like what he does. He might make me go hungry. He might make me move to Chad, Africa. And that's not easy. And I've never been there, but I'm telling you, it's not. Where are you with this element of being given over to God? Talk is cheap. You're called to be like Isaac, to be a living sacrifice. Will you bow your head and listen as... We close our service with a special number by Chris Wright entitled, All of Me. And this would be a time for you to just let the Spirit of God speak to you and put His finger on some areas in your life about your faith. Do you really live what you believe or are you all about talking it? Are you part of the parachute club that never jumps? With our heads bowed for just a couple more moments, if that's your prayer today, and you say, Pastor Van, I do surrender, and I want the Lord to take my life and let it be His, would you just stand right where you are before the rest of us stand and just say, this morning, the Word of God has spoken to me, and I do need to be stronger in my faith, and I need to trust God at a great higher level, and I want to surrender myself to Him. And I want Him to be a living sacrifice. Would you just stand right where you are so I can see you? Thank you. Don't do it if, if your heart's not stirred and you don't mean it, but if you mean it, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's all stand together, please. Oh, Father, <clears throat> we're real good at talking the talk, so please challenge our hearts that we would be able to live the life of faith. Thank you for this tremendous episode in the life of Abraham that is a model for us. Thank you for our Lord Jesus who modeled this kind of obedience. And thank you for the great testimony of that young man, Isaac, who obeyed his father in cooperation. And for Abraham, who never wavered, Lord, and may we be like that. Father, help us to stop talking and to start living at a whole new level of obedience.
We have your word. Now help us to live it out. For those who stood today, Lord, opening their hearts and minds to you anew and afresh, to be that living sacrifice with that desire to just live at a higher plane, would you encourage them and strengthen them through your Holy Spirit, minister to them today and throughout the week. For all of us, Lord, to be tender, to be easily molded by you. Give us the strength that we need to resist the devil, to overcome the flesh, and to just walk in humble, obedient faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray.